Welcome to the EPS podcast, a case study of Unboxed. A UK-wide festival that involved a programme of live events in 107 UK locations, Unboxed engaged an audience of 18 million people across the four nations. This session explores what and who was involved in the project, the challenges overcome, and the effort to provide value for money from the government's £120 million project. It's a final session of EPS. That's the 10th session of the event. And um, we have a great panel of, um, of speakers here to discuss Unboxed. Um, I'm going to look at my notes here, forgive me, just to make sure I get the statistics exactly right. But it was uh, a program of 10 projects taking place over a seven month period in 107 UK locations, which was attended by 18 million people uh, across the four nations. Um, at the top of the tree, if you like, on this project, we've got um, Phil Batty. Um, he was the executive director, Phil Batty OBE, uh, Phil, um, executive director of uh, Unboxed. Um, the other three um, were focused on particular projects. And what I'm going to do is introduce them, and then we're going to have a uh, little film, which will give you a little bit of a context, really, f um, about, uh, about what the event actually um, what, yet, what the project actually was and, and did. Um, so on my immediate left, we have uh, Jennifer Crook, and she is the director of Collective Act, um, the producers of Dream Machine. So let's have a look, look at uh, a Dream Machine. Bringing together this incredible team of extraordinary minds, all coming from different backgrounds with different expertise, to co-build and design and develop this project has been amazing. One of the great joys of the Dream Machine project is that the scientific and the philosophical aspects have been built into the project from the very beginning. We're investigating a phenomenon that's still not widely understood, how flickering light generates this kaleidoscopic, vivid, immersive range of experiences for people. So we're really making something that is um, internal and quite transcendental and personal into a collective experience. Because of the nature of the experience, we're hoping that what will really happen is that it will engender conversation and so every stage of the dream machine has been designed in a way to really enable people to talk to each other. This particular project is unlike anything because your eyes are closed and your brain is creating the visual. It's the first time I've actually composed something specifically to be played in a 360-dimensional sound. So that's allowed me to do much more than I've ever done. There are more sounds in there than, than I would put in a stereo track. So it's a little bit like moving from black and white to colour. Being inside this thing is kind of magic. It completely sort of envelops you. It saw the entire universe go by behind my own closed eyes. I saw colours that I haven't seen for years. Vibrant, powerful, passionate colours. It was just absolutely, I found the whole experience absolutely fascinating. I'd recommend it to anyone. Um, regardless of their age, because they could get the same feeling. Our brains are powerful. <laughs> they are very powerful things. 
I would I would consider it a life-changing thing to go through, 100%. On the left, on, the, on my left, on the sofa there, we have Patrick O'Mahony, who's uh, founder of uh, New Substance, and was heavily involved in the Sea Monster project, which we'll now have a little look at. Great stuff. And last but, not least, we last but not least, we've got um, John Russell, his executive creative producer and co-founder of Walk the Plank. Uh, Walk the Plank oversaw green space, dark sky, skies.
Okay, that's great. Well, that's hopefully provided some context if you weren't one of the 18 million people to get to one of those events. Um, quite beautiful. Um, Phil, can you um, just give us a little bit of background and context in terms of how this uh, whole project came to be? So the project was announced back in 2018 as a £120 million investment in creativity across the UK. Um, back then, there was just two key core elements, bring people together and celebrate our creativity internationally. Um, we got involved back in sort of early 2020 um, when the four governments of the UK were looking for an organisation to take on and deliver the programme. And what emerged was this incredible commissioning project that you've seen here today. It's 10 extraordinary projects, all have been devised through real cross-sector collaboration from across science, tech, engineering, maths, as well as um, the amazing artists that have been involved. And I think unusually they took place in every corner of the UK. That was core to the brief. Make sure um, that you didn't just deliver for main metropolitan centres, but you were physically out there right across the UK um, alongside an amazing digital and broadcast commissioning program and it's it's been great to see albeit quite quickly how how it's all turned out and and been realized last year excellent and obviously a project like this having you know massive having full uk reach uk wide reach and having so many people involved must have had uh, numerous challenges but wouldn't have been helped by jacob Rees-Mogg kind of labeling it festival of brexit and then the press jumping on that bandwagon and how unhelpful was that, and was that was that a considerable hurdle to overcome, or or not? I think in the context, it's it's hard not to say that that wasn't a hurdle or a challenge. You know, this was given a label that bears no representation of what any of us worked on and any of us delivered. This was not a festival of Brexit. It never has been a festival of Brexit. I think you know it's easy to label that criticism at one individual, the media, but actually. This was a project that all four governments of the UK, no matter which political party led those different administrations, got behind. And I think in the context that we live in now with the, the challenging political environment, there's something pretty powerful that everybody stuck with it, all governments drove us through and are still supporting us here till the end. But actually, if you think about the period of time that we delivered this project, it wasn't one challenge. You know, We all met for the first time on this project in the depth of lockdown two, we sort of were relaxed into a four-tier system for about three weeks, and then we all went into lockdown three. And that's where every single one of the 10 ideas was born out of. Add to that the supply chain challenges we were facing, the recruitment challenges. You know, I think that actually shows the determination and amazing power of our, our industry to still make every single one of these projects happen, not just on time and on budget, but to the incredible level of execution that colleagues around the table have done, done through the programme. And how beneficial was it for the industry, do you think, in the sense that you know, there was this, this, this £120 million project being financed by, by government? And um, you know, as you say, it was happening during the tail end of the pandemic. You had all the supply chain issues around that. But obviously, it must have given a great positive focus to a lot of people in the industry to kind of have this to work on or work towards. I think one of the things that sets Unboxed apart from other creative programmes is it, it started through a real investment in R&D. And the creative studio that we ran at the beginning of the program, it wasn't an investment in the delivery of ideas. It was an investment in the development of ideas. And through that, you know, we were able to make sure there was resources to pay freelancers to give their time to think and develop and co-create these projects. We were enabled to sort of create space for different sectors to actually figure out how they work together, how they develop their practice with one another. And we were able to pay for that. And I think that's really, really important when you're when you're trying to do things differently and you're trying to 
lean into innovation, you need to invest in that innovation. Um, and I think the, you know, the result of that was, you know, this project has involved hundreds of freelancers, thousands of employees and individuals, and you know, hundreds of partners and you know, almost every corner of the UK event production industry has played a role in one part or, or multiple parts of, of the delivery. Thank you. Okay, and, and Patrick, if we start by talking about Sea Monster, if you can just talk me through a little bit about how this kind of concept came together, because it's pretty, it's a it's a pretty challenging, um, ambitious it was a, a project. Um, so can you just talk through a little bit about how it came together, and also um, what were the uh, two questions, I guess, but what were the kind of biggest hurdles to overcome and getting yeah, this plenty of them yeah um so you know obviously came about through the r d process we put together our cross-sector team people we'd never worked with before from the british antarctic survey to kinetics artists like ivan black to space scientists so a real mix of people that we'd never worked with before and that was the whole point of that initial r d process you know we're, we're obviously very good at collaborating as an industry but we always collaborate with the people we know and the people we trust and you kind of very kind of closed circuit in that sense so this was that opportunity to work with new people and they really drove that idea process over that three months and that's what came first the, the stories came first the idea about reuse the idea about the great british weather the idea about renewable technologies and then the rig came we found these structures these monsters these big industrial forms that sit there all around the world and, and no one's ever cracked reuse before so it seemed like a great idea at the time obviously to see if we could take one of these structures and reimagine it and use that as our our platform to tell these stories um, in, in terms of the challenges, I mean, they were being the first people in the world to do something. There is no rule book, so there, there is no one to ask. There is no one to get help from in that sense. So, you know, from the point of view of we had a rig at one point, we lost that rig, we got another rig that was in Holland. There was no process to bring that over to the UK. So we constantly had battles from A, securing the structure, B, bringing it into the country, and then obviously C, the production challenge of finishing it. But again, I think that was one of the amazing factors of the project. We had incredible cross-sector support from the people who are moving it to the council at, at Somerset and North Somerset Council in terms of our location in terms of what unbox and we needed that kind of group support to get us to the finish line because every day every day on Seamons the, there was a different challenge yeah I bet I bet and John I mean obviously um, you know you had 20,000 volunteers is that right I mean we, we ended up I think we had 13,000 in the end but uh, over 20,000 people signed up Right. So, I mean, how difficult was that to coordinate? I mean, that's obviously a huge number of people. How did how did that sort of how did it all work? And how well, did you we, were, it? we did it? Um, we had 20 events across the UK and uh, we had a whole Marcom strategy about how to recruit them. We set up a, a really good website. We did um, lots of publicity around it and, and we got really, really good sign up. And it's quite quite an ask to get somebody to come to a, a rural location. It might take them an hour or two to get there. Then they're going to be there for four, five, six, seven hours, go up a mountain in the daylight, get filmed, do your stuff with lights, and then come back down in the dark. Yeah, absolutely. And Dream Machine's obviously a um, you know a, a, quite an immersive project, a, a, a kind of beautiful art project. Could you, um, Jennifer, just tell me where the inspiration came from for the project um, and what the response from the public was like to it, please? 
Sure. So it was actually inspired by an invention from 1959 by a beat artist called Brian Geisen. Now, he invented this quite rudimentary device, which was basically a bit of cardboard and a record player and a light bulb, um, which um, was inspired by the phenomena of flickering light on closed eyes that generates this kaleidoscopic experience that you heard a bit about in, in the video. This had never been done before beyond this kind of, um, I guess, DIY invention in the 60s had never been realized at this scale, and it was still an active field of research in neuroscience. So the idea was to take that and turn it into a collective experience. So we had this beautiful marrying of something that's deeply personal that only you see, you know, it all takes place inside your mind, behind your closed eyes, but you're sharing that experience with others. So that's point of connection was really important to us. And I guess it's fair to say we set out a little bit like Patrick was describing with um, a, a lofty idea, <laughs> but no way of realizing it and no one had done it before on this scale. So we really had to collaborate very closely with our, our researchers to iterate prototyping across a year and a half to investigate the black box, which is the human mind, and to develop a process which would deliver this effectively at scale for you know the mass population. And we brought in two and a half thousand people into those focus groups to develop that together together with our audience. And I think it's fair to say that on the other side of that, what we experienced last summer was phenomenal. We had no idea that we would see the range of emotional responses that we saw. So we had everything from people grinning and coming out with like extreme joy through to people dealing with some quite deep grief or sadness because you know this experience was providing a space to unlock that. Um, we saw people who were partially sighted or blind who'd never had a kind of visual experience of the world seeing color for the first time. So all kinds of unexpected outcomes that are now the subject of two or three PhD studies going forwards. Um, and we just keep finding more things. So we kind of see what we've done as a very large scale prototype for a whole other kind of area of, of research and future. Wow, excellent. Okay. And obviously, you know, on the back of the pandemic with this with this series of projects happening all over the country, how this is to you feel, how important do you feel the overarching project was in terms of encouraging people to get out again. We've talked about earlier on in this uh, conference about research showing that 18 to 24 year olds particularly are, are a lot more reluctant to come out than they were pre-pandemic. Um, obviously, it's arguable how many 18 year olds were going out when they were 15. To, anyway, but you know, there, there is concern about changing consumer behavior when it comes to ticket purchasing and that kind of thing. So do you feel that unboxed 18 million people in attendance was helpful in terms of encouraging people to, to, to come together at different projects around the country? I think the world has changed so much over the last three to four years that we were fortunate to start from a position of we were commissioning for digital audiences, for broadcast audiences and for live audiences at the same time. I think the risk with that is if you're going to have a balanced program where you've got live, digital and broadcast combined, that you only do the live in big city centres where there is the infrastructure and guaranteed audience to deliver that. Taking shows like About Us to Carnarfon in Wales, being able to do story trails in Amara in Northern Ireland, they, they were purposeful decisions to make sure that there was a balanced programme that had you know, a large number of events, you know, hundreds of events, community activities, workshops, festivals, alongside content that was accessible to everyone. And I think particularly Green Space Dark Skies took beautifully made wonderful artistic content that absolutely celebrates the geology and the the natural environment that we live in and took that to mainstream audiences through you know one of the big criticisms we see in the mainstream media is well people were watching bbc country file anyway well they weren't watching incredible works of art intervening in the natural landscape 
using this amazing new lighting technology. They were watching, yes, farmers, sheep, whole range of different content that's on Kutchfell. And why wouldn't we intervene into people's lives in that way? That's, that's why we use the technology and the tools in the world that we live in. But I, I think it was important we had the balance. There was live there, but there was also digital and broadcast too. Great, thank you. Okay, and, and Patrick, in terms of Sea Monster, you mentioned about reuse being a, you know, a, lot, uh, ma a major focus uh, in the conceptual sort of uh, bring, you know, um, construction and, and ideology around the, this, this uh, project. Um, can you just talk us through some of the practical um, elements that were involved in terms of the way things were reused, what was reused, how it was used, you know, the, your focus on sustainability, essentially. Yeah, I suppose there the are two strands to that. The structure itself, obviously, normally that would have entered a five-year decommissioning process. We were trying to create a blueprint, basically, for this model. You know, the principle of reuse around big industrial structures, I find, is personally very, very interesting. And we're seeing already now, off the back of Sea Monster, we're having conversations about other structures like this, one to do with a nature reserve, one to do with an art gallery, one to do with a theater. The principle of instead of always just tearing this stuff down and, and putting it into that cycle, what about if we can reposition it? What happens if we can reuse it? These big parts of our history, you know, the whole concept of those rigs, we're all culpable in what they've done and where we've come from. So why can't we kind of put a, a spotlight onto that and reimagine them in a new way? So that was, that was the really big driver in terms of that part of it and creating that blueprint outside of what we're doing with Unbox so it can have a, a bigger legacy piece afterwards and we're starting to see that now. Then I think there was the, the wider piece in terms of um, the renewable technologies. We really wanted to see what happens at the intersection of art and design and renewables. We obviously know kind of the big white wind turbines and the solar platforms, but what we wanted to investigate is when the artist starts to intersect that piece and when they become sculpturally led, can they play a bigger pace in placemaking and cultural strategies for cities if they are iconically driven in themselves? So that, that was a big factor as well in terms of how we start to approach that sustainable conversation, but from an artistic point of view rather than just pure technology. And, and they were two of our principal big drivers in terms of the sustainability point of the project. Okay, and, and John, how much, I mean, obviously, you know, we've had a panel on sustainability on, in this stage. We had one over on another stage earlier on. It's an it's a important subject, obviously. It's very, very key to our survival as human beings. But, um, so from your perspective, you can just kind of give me a little bit of an overview or give us a little bit of an overview of, of uh, considerations that were involved with... Um, we, we started off by looking at uh, how, we how we delivered everything, um, how we got to places, what we were doing there, and we gave, we gave that a, an awful lot of thought to try and reduce our footprint right from the start. And uh, alongside that, we then um, investigated, we really dived deep into calculations around our carbon footprint. We know exactly how many meals were eaten, how many were vegetarian, how everybody got there. And that data is now, we're, we're looking at that data, it's being assessed and it's totally fascinating. And we've got a report coming out, which is going to share, share all of those findings. And we, will, we are now taking that through into our working practices generally. So it's sort of given us a really good uh, leg up. Okay, and just while the QR code is on the screen there, um, behind John, the, uh, the VVOX uh, app is functional. So if uh, any of you want to ask the panel a question, please just quickly scan that QR code, go to the link, and there's a little box, um, and you can add questions in there, which we can put to the panel during this session or, or maybe towards the end. Um, 
Um, this is a, a, a question for kind of for 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 all of you, really. I mean. If we start with you, Jennifer, what would you say is the kind of key? I mean, it, was, was there anything about this project that you feel ultimately is going to benefit the wider uh, events industry? Is there any kind of takeaways from it? Yeah, there? so I guess, you know, it's, it's back to that point of collaboration and the fact that we, we brought the academics on our um, two research institutions into the process of developing and delivering this project. And it stretched everybody. It's really hard to collaborate genuinely and to give everyone in a voice in every step of designing a project. So I think, particularly for our technical team, they learned hugely from the academic process of how you follow a scientific study. You know, how do you test and iterate in a way that allows you to observe what's happening when there's all kinds of variables going on. That ordinarily in an arts or technology project, you might not be that rigorous in your testing and approach. So it was actually the only way for us to de develop this project, but it's meant that our technical team are now taking that approach into their work in other kind of industries and on other projects. And, and similarly, the artistic thinking, so you know, lifting those, I guess, rigorous research protocols and thinking more broadly about your hypothesis or allowing for unexpected outcomes is informing our scientific research. So I think they, they really are dancing between the two and it feels like something which taken into other projects can have you know, so many untold benefits that we won't, might not know for years to come yet. Wow, okay, brilliant. And um, John, I understand um, the lighting. I mean, uh, the question is, you know, the impact on the events industry, positive impacts it may have down the line. But I understand the obvious one to me would be potentially this lighting technology that was developed for the project. Yeah, so we um, we were we partnered with Siemens, which was a fantastic opportunity. And um, we developed uh, with Siemens and Core Lighting um, uh, a geo-light technology. So basically, we know where each light is. And our, I suppose our project started to explore how we use that. And the the real legacy of it is over the over these coming next few years, how we can uh, explore that in different ways. This was one particular way that we did it, uh, and I think there are many more. And we've had a lot of brilliant conversations at this show um, with clients, promoters who are, and we're exploring lots of different ways forward. That's great to hear, um, Patrick. You already talked about the legacy to an extent, obviously it's inspiring other people to look at you know, reuse of these huge structures, but are there any other ways in which you feel that this project has sort of benefited the way that maybe you work in the industry yeah, or other absolutely. people? Absolutely. I think it kind of goes to that, um, and we talked about this morning at another conference in the sense that the cross-sector collaboration piece has been brilliant. You know, people that we worked with on this project that we would have never normally come into contact with has changed our approach to design in that sense. So the kind of validity about how we approach that kind of creative piece from the accessibility piece to the environmental piece, people with very, very specific knowledge, they really challenged us, I suppose, in that design process to make sure everything we're doing is authentic in that approach. And it really did open our eyes to the benefit of that whole process. And, and now we're already going on a number of the, our original 12 collaborators and now with us on big pavilion projects, big arts projects, and we've taken them with them and they're much, a much bigger part of our extended team now. That's excellent. Okay. Um, you Phil, okay, so I understand that over, the overall overarching project um, basically uh, created in the region of 6,000 jobs or paid roles um, during a time when obviously the live, live events industry had, had kind of been impacted heavily by the um, pandemic. Um, what do you believe the most positive uh, impact was of this event on the industry? 
most positive? Well, I don't think there's a single most positive thing. I think, you know, if you start at the pure nuts and bolts numbers end, the, the project massively invested in the UK event sector. There is direct economic benefits that were felt from that in supply chain, in businesses, in jobs creation, as you've alluded to, but also, you know, in towns and cities where the boost to local cafes, shops, hotels was was felt too. So that's that's always important, isn't it? Especially when you're being labelled by the media as a waste of money. Well, actually, the return on that economic investment is huge and is fundamental. But I think what, what we've seen with this project is beyond that, there's been some real social, social and cultural benefits that have come through the programme too. It's, it's played a really important role in bringing different groups of people together, both sectorally in the events industry, but also in the communities where the events have taken place. And you know the early findings from the evaluation that comes up later this month very much talk about that. That is the sort of core base. On top of that, you've got across all 10 projects, a huge learning program, which was co-delivered by all 10 projects and our team centrally, which reached 1.7 million children, young people and family members. Now, some of them are gonna go on and really having had an unlocked experience of what science and art can do to together and think actually that's going to inform what I do career-wise, that's going to inform my perspective of the world. I hope others, and we particularly saw this with you know, students who are going and seeing the installations and seeing the work, I think I want to get into this sector, I want to work on projects like that and we had um, a network of ambassadors that were early career or emerging career um, individuals across all of the projects um, that followed each of those projects and, and went through paid work placements as part of those and you know, I think in 10, 15, 20 years time they'll be the people doing panels, they'll be the people having stalls at this event and, and that's why that investment is really, really important and I would never say that investing in the events industry, investing in culture is a waste of money. It's a really important um, part of how public money should be spent. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's been one of the subjects that's been coming up on panels throughout the last two days is that the resource is a huge issue and that we need to kind of attract people back into the industry. So all of these projects and things like you're saying now are absolutely vital. Um, just talking about the attendance side of things, I mean, most event organizers could only dream of, you know, attracting 18 million people to, to a project. It's a huge number. Obviously, the target was in the 60s, I think, wasn't it? What, what, it's, it's all a bit of a sort of, you know, such large figures, it's difficult for, for me to kind of picture how, quite how, you know, how happy are you with the end result in terms of the attendance? So I think if you box off the 66 million point, you know, Martin Green said very early on he wanted a project that could reach the whole UK. Well, 66 million is the population of the UK. I don't think anyone sets out on an event thinking every single person will be able to go to a project. It's, it's how you create vision, it's how you create ambition, it's how you create aspiration, and, and the result was working at scale. Um, you know, we have been really focused that engagement has to matter and count. So whether you've gone to a live event, whether you've really interacted with the digital experience, or whether you've consumed actual artistic content through broadcast, not just listen to us on the Today programme. That was how we counted engagement with this project and that was how we got to the figure of 18 million. You know, I worked on the Commonwealth Games last year as well. We had one and a half million people who came and watched sport as part of the Commonwealth Games. We had 2.4 million who came and enjoyed the cultural festival. Nowhere near the scale of engagement that was experienced through this project and I think when you step back and you look at what the UK has done over the last 10 years, whether it's the incredible success of 1418 Now, the Great Exhibition of the North, the UK City of Culture programmes, London Borough of Culture programmes, 
this this pregs very high in terms of in terms of engagement and of course we made mistakes along the way but that doesn't mean that those 18 million experiences aren't valid don't count didn't have a, a huge impact on the the individuals the families the community groups that took part okay and i understand there's a national audit office investigation though is that is that a standard kind of procedure when you have a big government project like this or what, what what's the situation with that and when is it likely to be finalized you know with the final results or so there's two sides of that so there's um the chair of the dcms select committee julian knight um has openly said we're a waste of money he is wrong we are not we are not a waste of money we've delivered incredible impact and we've done it brilliantly well on time and on budget um, but obviously when there is that level of public scrutiny it is the role and responsibility of the national audit office to come and look at how public money is being spent and how that is being done um, we've worked with them through that period through september october november they published their report in december it found that we delivered 10 projects we did them on time we did them on budget we met the brief that we were set Yes, when we were modelling some of the audiences, we thought maybe 23 million people might engage, 18 million people engaged, and still growing at the point that that was published. Um, I d you know, I'm not going to argue between 18 or 23 million. I think that's a lot of people. Um, and I, I think whilst that investigation, that study, will point to things we could have learned along the process, that's great creativity, isn't it? You learn, and when you do it again, you do it differently, and you build on that learning, and you don't shy away from that learning. So I think it's sort of separating out the politics from the reality is an important part of understanding what the impact of Unboxed was. Yeah, and I, we've been talking about on other panels as well about lobbying government for you know reduction in VAT on tickets in terms of maybe supporting a campaign to encourage people out to events and hospitality and, and whatnot. Um, Obviously, investing 120 million pounds in a in a series of projects like this is, um, you know, is is considerable. So, do you feel that difficult to, to? Do you feel that the government is doing enough to support and is aware is doing enough to support the events industry and is aware of uh, has a clear insight into kind of its capabilities? I mean, obviously, we've had Operation London Bridge, very different kind of project, but equally quite you know spectacular in terms of what was achieved in the short period of time. Um, so I guess the question is really, do you feel like, you know, government is engaging with the events industry in the right way and has enough faith and, and supports it in the, in, in sufficiently? I mean, I've worked in events for the last 10 years. I'm always going to say the government can invest more, do more, spend more, uh, because that's what enables us to grow the sector and continue to build on the contribution we make. I think what was particularly powerful about this project was seeing four governments co-invest and I think there's more that could be done at that sort of national UK-wide scale when you've got Scottish government, the Welsh government, the Northern Ireland exec and UK government all investing in one programme. Because actually one of the things that that enabled us to do more freely was collaborate across sectors, across locations, across across media and art form. And I think that that was that was pretty unique. It's very rare to have that that level of cross-government collaboration. And, you know, this was a major investment. It was 120 million pounds. There can always be more investment in arts creativity, but I think what's critically important is this was also an investment in very innovative investment in creativity. So actually the bravery and boldness of a government to invest in cross-sector collaboration, to do projects which you've, you've heard, when we set out and commissioned these projects, there were projects we didn't even know were technically, physically, or practically possible. That's the sort of investment you want to see the UK doing, because that's what makes us the UK. That's what makes us so exciting as a place to make work. Great stuff. Okay, and uh, just 
check in to see if we've got any questions. That's good news. We have. Okay. Um, would you mind? I saw you you um, blow up the pit the uh, questions on the last panel. Just my eyesight's not fantastic. <laughs> so if we could have that luxury, that'd be a, that'd be fantastic. Okay. How does the Dream Machine deal with original counterculture ideas of BG? Brian Geisen. Who asked that question? That's a great question. <laughs> I love that question. Um, so yeah, Geisen was a radical disruptor. Um, and I think, you know, if you remember his vision, which was that that cardboard device would replace the TV in every home in America, we brought this experience to a mass public audience and put it in the heart of our capital cities in the town center. So in terms of his um, original intent, I think, to bring enlightenment to the masses and to provide a way to step outside of consumerist culture and see what your powerful, you know, what your brain is capable of and how powerful you are. Uh, we, I think we totally achieved that. I hope if he's up there, he's like, go. <laughs> Great stuff. Okay, and um, we had another question up there, if you don't mind showing up. Okay, this is quite a long one. It's fantastic to see what can be achieved with innovation when there is real investment in arts and culture. How did you approach cross-sectional collaboration and making connections to people who are so far removed from the arts industry? Who would like to take that one on? Well, I suppose in, in our project, um, we ended up with these you know, thousands and thousands of people who came out into the countryside and helped create huge pieces of art in the landscape. And the, f the feedback that we've been getting from those people is absolutely amazing. You know, it's that pe one person holding a light when you're one of 600 people holding a light in an amazing place. I think people have just been blown away by that. And we've got people, people just constant people asking, when can, we when can we do this again? You know, how, how can we make more of this? And we're just working out how to answer that at the moment. It's great to hear. Okay, anyone else want to take the same question? If not, I'll, I'll move on to just... That is a very long comment. I don't... If, um, if you guys can... Okay. Um, seeing it is... Yeah, let me pause. So I'm Bill G from Activate uh, in Dorset, and the point I wanted to make, do you want to put it back up on the screen? Um, uh, we're a partner, we did one of the 20 projects with Walk the Plank with Green Space Dark Skies, and we do a festival every two years. Uh, and so for us, it gave us a really big project in the year when we don't do the festival, um, which was very interesting, particularly that you not telling people where it is, but that we had a totally amazing day when we gathered over 600 people as participants who, <coughs> who didn't know until like the day before where they were coming. Uh, and we got them on buses and brought them to Maiden Castle. But for us, what was really important that um, in the 600 participants, over one third of those people were what we called Illuminator Plus people. So there were people that we had had the resource uh, to go out and actually target, to either send artists to do workshops or just people to go and have a chat with them actually sometimes. And then we could support transport to get them there. And those 200 people were from what you call hard to reach groups, targeted groups, people you know from diverse communities, deaf and disabled uh, participants from housing associations and veterans groups, you know. And for us, uh, what's really great is that this year we're doing the festival 
uh, in September. Uh, and we are, have a strategy to, well, to work potentially with all of those people. They may not all want to, but actually for us, it gave us a big enough thing to say, do this thing, and then now we are, you know, our job, you know, in Dorset, we always saw this, this is why we wanted to do it, was that it gave us the opportunity to then work with these people that we wanted to do. And that wouldn't have been possible without, you know, obviously through what the plank had got passed to us, you know, a good sized chunk of the unboxed commissioning money, which meant that we didn't have to go to all the same funders that we go to for the festival, who, like, doing the festival this year, we're not getting the money. Uh, we'd been even harder if we hadn't had that money. You know, it's really tough out there pulling money in. So actually it was fantastic to not spend so much of your time raising the fucking money, but actually having the money to do the work. Thank you. Well, well that's, that's good to hear. We are kind of running out of time. So just, just briefly, um, uh, if you could all just, I think just, it'd be nice to finish this on a positive note. So, I mean, Patrick, for you, what was the biggest takeaway from this? You know, you're, you're, you're involved in events ongoing, you've yeah. got plenty of projects on the go, but what is the, what is the one thing that you took away from this that is the most positive thing? That yeah, for me, it was, the, it was the ambition, the investment in brave, ambitious projects. You know, we predominantly work internationally. We very rarely work in the UK. So something to actually back our own work on our home territory, but also actually take a risk to have a government project like this to actually invest in something really brave, really ambitious and really bold. Felt really empowering to everyone and everyone that we worked with on the project. Okay, thank you. And John? Um, I, I think our whole, the whole our journey around sustainability and how we approach our future work, I think that's a big takeaway. And I think we, we've now got, uh, we've got an amazing opportunity with uh, the fact that we have 1,750 of these lights and we have methods of working in a sort of mass participation way. Um, and I think taking that forward is is currently very exciting from where I'm sitting. Great stuff, excellent. Okay, and, and for you, Jennifer, obviously you've already discussed about quite remarkable um, interactions with the project. Um, so, I mean, what, what, for you personally, what's the, what's the most positive takeaway? Um, well, I guess that we can now take it around the world. And, you know, last year was just a prototype. So we're now looking at 45 different cities in 20 countries <laughs> who are interested in, in hosting this. So, um, yeah, it's, it's just the beginning. Great stuff. Okay. And lastly, you, Phil. When one of the first things we all agreed on with this project was the values, which was to be open, original, and optimistic. And I think when we settled on that word optimism, I think we knew we were going to have a few like stones thrown at us over the life of the project, but I don't think we quite expected how much of a rocky roller coaster it was going to be, particularly um, with perception of the project rather than reality of the project. And coming out the other side, we're all still smiling. We've made amazing new connections with so many people that we hadn't worked with before and rekindled relationships with people we have in the past. We've all delivered and we're all still enjoying being part of this incredible sector. And that, you know, if, if you can come out of something that happened this quickly, with this scale, with this level of public scrutiny, and still want to do it all over again, um, I think that's, a, that's, that's optimism in a bottle for me. <laughs> Lovely way to finish, absolutely. Okay, well, um, if you don't mind showing your appreciation to, to the four panelists, uh, thank you very much for, for watching.